Live from Washington, D.C., it's Quintessential Listening, Poetry Online Radio. QLPOR, as it's widely known, features a bevy of poets, spoken word artists, and live poetry readings with best-selling authors. Your host is Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. My guest is Richard Harris. Richard not only is a noted poet, he's also a spoken word artist. Richard hails from the United Kingdom, England to be exact. He has published two books, The Sterile Books of York, Awakening, and Iconic Tattoo, and his forthcoming book from Pool Frog Publishers, Changed Times. He's also gained a considerable following on YouTube. How are you, Richard? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for asking me. Richard. Please share with me, what is poetry? Poetry to me is my pure emotion, my gut, my soul, everything that I am. And it's catharsis, it's my being and how I express myself. And if I, now that I've started writing poetry, I wouldn't know how to stop. And indeed, when I was waiting for you to send the link for this, I wrote a poem because it just took my mind off waiting. And at one point when I started writing poetry, I thought, oh, this will run out. And it just doesn't because things annoy, irritate, joy, happiness. All these things make me write. Mm -hmm. So why do you think poetry is important? The main thing is to try and make change because so many things anger me, particularly about politics and the world and pollution and everything that's going on. And I think people need to stand up and shout and be heard. And so I think that's really important to try and effect change because if you don't protest and you don't try and make a difference, then it dullens your life. What was an early experience where you learned that poetic language had power? As a young child from Yorkshire, I was read the poems of Anne Bronte, who one of the Bronte sisters, and she wrote some very dark and sad poems. I hope that with the brave and strong, my portion task might lie. And she had TB and she was dying and she wrote about it and her poems were often Methodist hymns. And so I sang them as a young child and I think that was the first time that I found that language could be so moving in poetry. Now, do you come from a literary background? What did you learn about writing? I have been influenced by some poets I studied at school at the lower level, when you're about 15, we used to call them lower levels, of course, something else now. I studied Wilfred Owen, Siegfried Sassoon, and Rupert Brooke, who were the World War I poets. Very serious, very tragic and wonderful. They influenced me, and then two years later, at what we then called A-levels, that's like the exams that get you to university, 
I studied Andrew Marvel and John Donne, who were the metaphysical poets, and Donne is the one that brought the phrase no man is an island into the English language and also wrote a marvellous poem about death. Death be not proud, for some have called thee mighty and dreadful, yet thou art not. So I think they've influenced me. So John Betjeman in the 60s, I read a lot of his, and they were very humorous, and there's a lovely one called The Diary of a Church Mouse. So another one who would influence me. And I think I know so many wonderful poets like you and Rawl, and I'd have to mention Gerald Cowles from England, Julian Matthews, and Finn Hall, who is a Scots poet and is an amazingly motivated guy that gets us all involved with all sorts of things. I'd like yes. to share a poem. I wrote this one for a competition for York and having worked on it for some time, went on the submission page and found it was a day late. So it never went into the competition, but it's in the new book, which are all environment related poems, Change Times. And this is Moving to Its Doom. The world was in change, surfaces moving, mountain ranges thrusting up then settling, rain fell and seeped into the ground, created underground pools and lakes, then found ways of escaping through the soil and rocks. Mountain streams sprang up, clear, crystal clear, pure, healthy, refreshing, life-giving. They gurgled and ran downwards, joining with the other springs until a stream was formed, ever moving downhill. They joined more of the same again and again, always moving downwards, always clear and unspoilt. Dinosaurs drank from them. All life was, was sustained. The streams formed rivers and ran down into the seas, clean, pure seas full of marine life, full of fish and so many other beings. No creature left an imprint on the planet. Everything degraded down, enriched the planet, the only footprint they left was in fossil, and that was by accident, and spoilt nothing. Trees grew vastly high. Sometimes the wind felled them, or a volcano or flood, but there was no other way to destroy a tree. Forests grew, the air was pure, nature undisturbed. Then life forms evolved so much that humankind arrived on the verdant, pure planet and started to form civilization. This led to industry and Greed so vast that everything before it was crushed, forests destroyed and continue to be destroyed, the trees falling, crashing down, deforestation became a thing for money, for greed. The water ran down still but now had dirt, chemicals and raw sewage flowing to the sea. The scene became polluted too. Plastic and chemicals, sewage and dirt were everywhere. All had moved down to the sea. The world was now crowded. Vast amounts of species and only humankind caused this destruction and speeded their own end. Alongside this was another sort of greed, a greed for power and control, moving forward all the time in the form of war. A thousand years of attempts, attempts to be green by the thinking part of the race. The caring part was negated by the bombs and bullets shooting through the skies as war was raged moving armies forward inexorably. Governments had been formed by humans. Territory was desired. More territory for power, control and greed. 
and so the race moved on to its doom. Pollution, destruction, war, and so many devastating things contributed to its doom. The planet survived, but having been moved forward to its salvation by the demise of the polluting race, humankind. Thank you. That was an epic poem. One of my longer ones, actually. I quite often believe in being concise, and when you've said everything that you want to say, you should finish, but that one seemed to need to be long. All right. Let's focus on your forthcoming book from Pool Frog Publishers, Changed Times. What inspired you to write this book? I was at a live event in Hull, which is a nearby city, and two women bought my books, and I didn't know who they were. And they contacted me shortly afterwards and said they were publishers and they liked them and they would like to publish me. So then they said, please read our specifications. And their publishers firm really is concerned with the planet. So everything is environmental. I thought, Initially, I thought, I can't do this because I can't just sit down. I have to be moved, as I said earlier. But I went on to my word processor and put in fracking, polluting, mining, plastic, and discovered I had 58 poems. (laughs) In lockdown, when I was very bored, as we all were, I compiled various books. I did a children's story book from the work I had. And I did a historical one about war and things like that. But I had not realised that I had an environmental-themed book. Since the agreement to do it, I have written about six poems for it. But basically, it's literally a history of my writing. Some of them are 10 years old. And yet they all, because I am concerned about the planet and very angry about what's happening to it, I had a body of work. And I I didn't realise that there was a theme amongst them. Sometimes the themes are a bit tenuous, but they're all planet-based, yes. I'd like to introduce you to one of my previous guests. His name is Alatishe Kolowale. He lives in Nigeria. He, too focuses on the planet. Now, tell me about the title, Changed Times. What does that mean? I'm 71 next week. (laughs) I'm getting used to calling myself 71 now. And I looked through the book and tried to think what would be good to maybe illustrate, but also that would catch the eye. And It's about my life, really, because in 1970, when I had left school, things were so different from how they are now. And I'm contrasting, particularly about employment in England, how different things were. And there is a poem called Change Times. And sadly, you have to hear me sing for two lines. (laughs) So shall I do that poem now, then? This is with apologies to the American singer Melanie Safka. Look what they done to our land, Ma. Look what they done to our land. When I was 18, I left school, homeless, no place to go. No idea if there was any help, never heard of housing benefit. Stayed with a sister for a while, could not live there forever. 
a newly wed with a child, a husband and a mortgage. Got a local paper, looked for jobs. There were loads. Things were different in 1970. I saw eight jobs I could do, waitering, cleaning, bar work. I had no experience of anything. I made eight phone calls, got eight appointments, got eight interviews, one for that afternoon. Another worker there knew me, vouched for me. When could I start? Any time. Take your coat off, lad. I was offered all eight jobs. I chose two. Could live quite well, got a bedsit, then shared a flat, had to take care with my money. If I was treated bad at work, not happy, I told them to fuck right off. Started somewhere else next Monday. How things change. Look what they done to our land, ma. Look what they done to our land. Thank you. Oh. And now it, 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 we have a supermarket chain here called Aldi. And in the town I live in, it's a small Victorian town of 10,000 people. And if they ask for a till person, they get 360 applications. Yes. With your forthcoming book, you talked about focusing on the earth. Are there other predominant themes in the book? I write in a variety of genres. I write some historical ones. I'm very interested in eras like the Tudor and Plantagenets. Also, I write children's stories, which normally have a moral in the end. And I write about everything. Like comedy, I do some very silly ones. I do some naughty ones as well. In fact, I was performing last week at a place where I hadn't been known but was now getting known, so I decided to do a very naughty one. And they'd never heard me being rude. I can be irritated by a politician. I can be irritated by somebody littering. I can be made wildly happy by standing in the wind and letting the wind blow at me and things like that. So I will write about anything that moves me. It's just when somebody comes to me and says, will you write a poem about Taekwondo or something? And I think, no, you write one. And but In the new book, I can't... But I'm not interested in that, that a musical section, because music is so important to me. So I it's in my head and heart nonsense. all the time. Even when I'm not listening to music, I can hear music. I can put something on in my head almost. And I've got poems about Tina Turner, Sam Cooke, Petula Clark... In this anthology, which is Iconic Tattoo, and this is Music Makes Me Feel. It actually makes me feel alive inside. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel sad. It reaches every part of me. Music enters my heart, my soul, my being. Can transport me back in time to a warm place, to my inner child, to happy times dancing throughout life. Or to the saddest of times, to my mother's arms. Sixty years ago, to a holiday camp, age ten, having fun. It can make me cry, bring joy, be cathartic. Music is universal. It's in my head and heart all the time. In a dentist's chair, I turn it on in my head. It carries me through the bad. Love it. Ever. So that's that one. And the third one, I thought I had better read something from the new book, Change Times. And this is 
a more serious one and it's a very old one actually i went through all my poetry and chose things that were relevant to this theme and i wrote this a very long time ago snowflake and mankind crystals form hold together unique so the scientists tell us each an individual in its perfection true the snowflake is consummate different the only one and makes up a snowball, a snowman, a drift, storm, even avalanche. Made up of those unique particles of the snowflake, crystals, a snowflake is never alone. Humankind also is not perfect, but unique as the snowflake. Each birth is different, may become a saint or become a Mugabe, Pol Pot, Saddam Hussein or Torquemada. The same small child could have been Mandela or King, Mayor Angelou or Rosa Parks, or you or me, as unique as a snowflake, but never, no, not ever, flawless, as unique as a snowflake, but maybe, just maybe, perfection. We've reached my favourite part of the episode, it's a mini poetry concert. This is an opportunity for you to read your works. Uninterrupted, no questions from me, back to back. The stage is yours. This is a new poem that I managed to slip in just in the final editing stages of the new book. Change Times to be issued by Pool Frog Publishers of Bristol in a few months' time. I haven't got a date yet. A Fox. On holiday, large caravan park, green areas, ducks, geese, swans, a walk to the bins. Hands full of waste. As I get there, a beautiful fox strolls by, looks at me intently. So wonderful. No fear. I could reach out and touch its luxurious fur, its magnificent tail, so long, such thick, immaculate coat, but I don't. It moves elegantly, languidly, strolls away, no panic, no fear, maybe to return to feed when I'm gone. It was comfortable and at home, where there were masses of people and masses of waste, but no one to hunt him, to kill him savagely. Such a beautiful sight. Five Strong Women from the book Awakening by Richard Harris. I was left without a mother when young, but that is not what I want to talk about. When that happened, I found strength, hope, love, life from five amazing women. They each stood up to be counted and helped and carried me on my way. They chose to do this. My life became richer, deeper, vibrant, bearable because of these women who chose to love and help and advise and support me, all in so many different ways. They travelled to see me, wrote, loved, baked cakes, gave me shelter, several homes, talked to me, planned with me, loved me. I won't tell each of their stories and they are now all gone and grieved for and mourned, but I love them all and they amazingly love me. 
for that my gratitude and love eternal will be bless at the time of the murder of george floyd we were all in shock weren't we and i looked on the internet and i was googling other injustices and i came across this case which is quite well documented and many people know about but a lot of people don't and it moved me so much this poleaxed me i had to write this poem and it's called george stinney in 1944 which seems so long ago but it is within my sister's lifetime and just eight years before i was born in america the land of the free a 14 year old black boy was executed for the murder of two little girls he was placed in the electric chair had to be seated on a large bible used as a booster seat he was so small the girls were battered to death their bodies were dumped in a ditch the boy was george stinney he had spoken to them that day as they passed his house he directed them to where they could pick certain flowers that is all that was proven he was arrested and taken from his parents allowed no solicitor even though the sixth amendment guarantees him one allowed no visits from his family they could not agree on the description of the murder weapon and there was no blood found on george at the trial his counsel was a white politician campaigning for election in a town full of hatred where lynching was threatened he cross-examined no one george was alibied by his sisters which they still swear is the truth yes this is so close in time that some of the witnesses are still alive the trial just 81 days after the murders lasted one and a half hours the all-white jury were out 10 minutes 1000 whites packed the court not one black person allowed in george was not allowed to see his parents until after his conviction in america the land of the free at the trial they allowed discussion of rape and even necrophilia even though post-mortems pronounced the girls to be virgins the trial papers have disappeared as has an alleged confession one made by a 14 year old boy deprived of contact with parents or counsel they killed him with a too large hood that allowed the tears flowing to be seen his dad was allowed to approach and speak to him just before he died the only family contact he had, had since his arrest this was in 1944 in america he was buried in an unmarked grave 70 years later the conviction was overturned for lack of evidence and for being tainted with racism they never found the murder weapons how could a child hide metal objects so thoroughly he could not a real murderer ran free while they murdered another child this was in america george died because he was black if anyone can't comprehend why black lives matter why we need to take the knee they should research george stinney no one says other lives do not matter what they say in america in particular there is good reason to fear your early death if you are black 
and that should never have been and can no longer be. Good Intentions from the book Iconic Tattoo by Richard Harris Now I know my woman I am able to buy for her just well I know what jewellery she likes. That's courage, you say, yikes. So yesterday I went into town. I did not buy a gown. No, I saw a blouse and a stole that matched, which is my goal, to try to please my beloved wife and be thoughtful throughout life. So I did what many men have not the courage to do, but I looked at the sizes and I knew that they would fit my beloved one and I did what I knew I should have done. I went inside that charity shop and did buy both of these great tops. Now, this was a great inconvenience for me, as I could not now buy the food intended for tea. In fact, I would have to make a second trip to the shop to get enough vegetables for me to chop so that we could eat fresh food and have a lovely tea so good. But this I was quite prepared to do, looking forward to the praise and appreciation that I was due. I got home and showed them off proudly. She, to me, did exclaim loudly, Oh my! Just why, and she said with a sigh, you should not have paid cash. It was rather daft and rash. But why did you buy these tops? They are complete flops. Go on, tell me why, said I with a sigh. Last Friday I donated them, not wanting to wear them again. You were with me that day when I gave them away, and last but not least of all, you have the gall to not have noticed I. And again she did sigh have worn them for the past four years honestly if you drive me to tears all i could say was oops and wow i remember them now and when it was a very new poem i performed it at a very posh village festival north of hull swan london it was really exclusive people who came in daimlers and jags and porsches and afterwards, a fairly small man walked up to me with his Armani suit and his Valentino tie and said, Hello, the charity shop one, they have a similar story. And I said, Do you? He said, Yes. They spent £847 buying my wife a Hermes handbag and she didn't like it. And I well, um, that's a very similar tale to me for Awkward for Carrots. And that's almost become part of the poem. So I normally mention that after it. So I thought you'd like to hear that. Husband and Wife Talking From the book Iconic Tattoo by Richard Harris Oh my God, our daughter's coming to stay. And she's arriving today with her husband and kids. Oh my God, we have to clean. No, we don't. We have to clean and tidy away, fill the fridge, dairy-free, lactose-free, gluten-free too, fill the cupboards as well. No, we don't. Oh, tidy everything on the table, change the lampshades, dust the well, everything, put the dirty washing out of sight, only pure cotton sheets on every bed. No, we don't. Oh, put things in the shed, weed the flower bed, prune the hedge and mow the lawn. Again. Wash the kitchen floor, dust the TV, sweep the front path. It's clean. Oh, don't be a bore. We'll do it all again. Hang blackout blinds. Fill dishes with fresh fruit. Bake a cake. We'll be fine. 
vacuum all the floors, wash the kitchen cupboard door, should we paint the garden wall? They're coming to see us, not the house. Now I know who wins, so I'll now shut up and grin. And then she arrived, emptied the car, dumped the trammel for four, put the girls to bed, sat and relaxed, and then smiled and said, Lovely to see you both, and sighed. Now why isn't the white wine in the fridge? In my second book, Iconic Tattoo, I have a whole section of music. It's Tina Turner, Queen, Petula Clark and David Bowie. On David Bowie passing. So, he had a new album out, causing a fuss, getting rave reviews and a new single that was already a huge success too. He has been around so long, always changing, reinventing, always making comebacks, when he has never actually been away. My first memory of him is Major Tom, startling on top of the pots. So many brilliant things through the decades. He has truly touched the lives of millions and has been adored. His music will last eternally. He will remain adored, unique, no one like him, an ever-changing chameleon, visually, artistically, musically. I got up late, overslept, turned on the TV. Philip Schofield sat there looking sad, a picture of Bowie illuminating the screen. Oh, his arm was number one, is it? I thought then the words announcing his death came. I could not comprehend this. I had been expecting a tour. My brain would not accept this dreadful news. It took a long time for the words to sink in and for me to accept this tragedy, a man to be mourned the world over leaving us far too soon. Words of a Stranger I was seated in a room in an old house, feeling alone but with other people. Group therapy, counselling, a facilitator present. I was telling my story of abuse, of depression, of my stepmother trying to have sex with me when I was 14. A stranger, a new member, a young man I really did not know spoke. He told me it was not my fault. I had been a kid. I was stunned. It took a stranger speaking the truth to bring me relief and forgiveness. To forgive myself for something that I had not actually done. I did have no blame. I felt lead weights lifting from my shoulders, lead weights I had carried for 30 years. I cried, I howled, I emptied myself of the guilt, the guilt I should not have carried at any time, and certainly not so soon after my mother's death. This is a poem that I wrote in the middle of the lockdown and we were all scared and worried and disorientated and I woke up this morning with this idea in my head and I had to write it down. And it's a letter to my mother who died when I was 13. To my mother. Hello mum. Oh okay, you don't like mum or mother or ma, so it's mummy. Hello mummy, you've been gone now for a 57 years but we still think of you you died at 50 so long ago 
We are now the older generation. Judy died at 49, so did not even have as much time as you. Seward and Meg and I are now the old ones. Yes, I know they were Susan and Margaret, but things change. I'm so Richard, though, but have been Rick and Dick in my time. You had grandchildren, lots of them, and they had kids too, so now you are a great-grandma. And we worry about the children like you worried about us. Now we live in a strange world, a world where a pandemic rules, and mummy, we are frightened, angry, bewildered, scared. I woke up this morning and had to write to you. And that's in my book, Iconic Tattoo issued by Stairwell Books of York in the UK. Fantastic. Don't you think, Richard, you were meant to be a poet? Yes, I think I was. My uncle, who I've mentioned before, encouraged me to write. He was a journalist and he gave me some brilliant books by journalists. Cassandra was a very famous columnist here in the 50s and they were amazing. He did an interview with Marilyn Monroe and Edith Sitwell, Dame Edith the poet, and apparently they were friends, which you wouldn't expect. But of course, that stereotyping, which we try to avoid. And yes, I do feel it's like a sort of destiny that I found out by accident that I could write like this. What surprises you most about being a poet? I've got fans. <laughs> I've got people that turn up <laughs> to see me. And that just does my head in. Just amazing. And I see the same faces. And I just think, Wow. A friend of mine, who'd become a very good friend, we went into a cafe one day and the lady there I knew very well and she said, oh, how do you two know each other? And I said, poetry, but it's because Shane's a fan mm -hmm. and she comes to all my events and she turned to him and said, do you have your own events? Does he go to them? And look confused and I said no Shane doesn't have any events Shane comes to mine and I get him to perform I encourage him and I get him up on stage but so he'll no doubt watch this hello Shane Blades and he's a lovely poet and he really should perform more and I always try to encourage other people particularly people if they're starting off if they don't have the abundant confidence that I've got because I, that's just my personality and yes you get at a big event I get the, the tummy butterflies don't I but once I get on stage I'm just away it's just where I love to be we've almost reached the end of our poetic journey but I would like to know the following does knowing that your poems are published and out there in the world. Validate your being a poet, or are you content knowing that they're out of your system? Again, both. I'm sitting on the fence. It's really great when I've got them out. I'm really pleased once I've given birth to some of the harder poems. Um, and it's great that they're out there and I've written them. 
I started fairly late. I was nearly 60 when I started writing poems, and it never occurred to me that they would get published. But I was spotted at a the York Literary Festival, and my publishers thought that it was I did a wonderful poem. It's about male breast cancer. And I was given the honorary mention of the day. And they eventually published me. And I have an amazing following in the Indian subcontinent. I'm told my sales in Bangladesh, India and Pakistan are excellent. And I think that started with the YouTube channel because they like my voice and they're lovely regional accents in England and they're wonderful. But if you're learning English as a second language, you don't want a regional accent. But you'll be aware of the Liverpool accent with the Beatles and what have you. So me speaking in a relatively accentless voice, although there is an accent here, just being published seemed to validate me. And I've never really wanted to self-publish because it just didn't seem to work for me. When I got these two books out, and with the promise of a third one from them, in a couple of years' time, I was headhunted, as I think I've told you already, and now I've got this new one coming out with a different publisher, and that just blows my mind. The first one is Awakening, by published by Stairwell Books of York. Overseas, it's available on Barnes & Noble and Goodreads and Amazon International. The second book, which has only been out six or seven months, is called Iconic Tattoo and is also published by Stairwell Books of York and it's available on all those places I've just mentioned. The third book is due out in summer and I'm still waiting for the date. I don't know quite what she means by summer. Um, and it's published by Pool Frog Publishers and that's a UK publisher. They only do things that are planet-related. And that's called Change Times. Richard, what's next for you? What's next for you creatively? I write spasmodically. I haven't written anything for about a week, but I'm sure something will happen that will make me write again. And I'd like to have my historical poems published and we have edited them. My friend Paul Thornton is a, an amazing guy because I'm not very technical. And so we have the manuscript ready and it's been to one publisher who said there will be a minor administrative charge. And so I said, oh, what is a minor administrative charge? And it was £2,000. So they were told, I wanted to tell them rude words, but I just said, no, that's not possible. And so, but we've got the manuscript ready and we are submitting to other publishers. My publisher, the first publisher, wants to do a book in two or three years and I'll probably get the children's stories out then. I'm appearing at Hornsey Gala this in a couple of weeks' time. I'm appearing at Rhyme and Rhythm. I appear two or three times a month at open mics. 
there's a festival called Whitstock and I run one full day of it. So I'll be on the stage for eight hours in between acts. <laughs> That's quite something at 71. I'm going to be at the Yorkshire Wolves Festival, which is new for me, but a friend of mine, the late Clint Bostling, and I were booked to headline at the Beverly Arts Festival this it was February, I think, and Clint had been ill with cancer, but he felt he was beating it. And we would both do this two hour show between us on the Saturday and he passed away on the Tuesday. And a lot of soul searching and thinking. And I went and did the show alone, but I read his poems for the first part with the permission of his wife, Brenda, chose the poems. But it was very difficult because he was a very good friend. And I know his voice. And I know his poems in his voice. So it was very bizarre and touching and honouring for me. And out of that came this thing at the... Because that was it was a huge success. And it got me to re reach another audience, really. And so I have been asked to be at the World's Festival, which is something I haven't done before. So there's lots of things going on. And uh, yes, I'm just hoping that the books continue to come out. The thing is that I'm 71 and I jump in the car and go to Hull or Brig or Scunthorpe or Sleaford, Cleethorpes, places that are an hour, two hours away. I do go further. I've been up to Newcastle, but I can't see me at 80 jumping in a car and shooting around the place, flogging me books and performing. I don't know but if I'm really lucky. I'm a great fan of Petula Clark, who is 90 and still performing. She's just been in Mary Poppins West End show. Do, doing 10 shows a week. She's the bird woman, so she only sings one song. But people ask her, do you want to live forever? Which is like saying, when do you think you're going to die, I think? And she says, of course I do at this level of health. So whatever I can, of course I've come to it very late. I was 68 when the first book came out. So I'd like to continue publishing and getting my work out as long as I can. You remind me, Richard, of Sir Edmund Hillary. Wow. <laughs> the explorer, mountaineer who climbed Mount Everest. Because you're constantly climbing mountains you're constantly doing new things, broadening your horizons. And I think that is absolutely wonderful. To me, you epitomize a well-rounded poet. You're not stuck in one state of being. You're open to other states of being. And that's such a gift. So I want to thank you for joining me today. I thoroughly enjoyed our time together. 
I've loved it. You sometimes meet somebody you know that you instantly get on with and are a soulmate. And we, the audience won't know, but you've had to cut out hours of laughter and giggling, haven't you? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> we, we should tell them that the first session went on about 45 minutes and you only managed to get 13 minutes out of it. <laughs> Thanks again, Richard. And to the listeners, as I share with you every time we're together, let poetry ring somewhere throughout the land. Thank you. Quintessential Listening Poetry Online Radio is available on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also check out the website at qlpor.com.